0: Oh, did we talk about Ligma?
1: We we did not.
0: Damn it. Thought I was gonna get you. Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwan, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, on again, off again dungeon master Thomas Smiley. And we're here to talk about Legacy.
1: Now I'm not, I'm not the DM. I just have people over my house to play, and I really wish that I could have moved last week's game because I would have loved to join you on leaving a Legacy.
0: Dude, it was great to be on there, honestly. Like, I had such a blast recording with Jerry and Pat. They're just, they're awesome. They're so nice to, you know, promote our cast the way that they are. And uh, it sounds like we might be doing a collaboration episode somewhere down the road, so you'll get your chance to be on with them.
1: Yeah, I can't wait for it. Uh, I wanted to thank Pat and Jerry for the kind words that they have said about the cast. We saw a clear number of people that had heard about us through your cast with leaving a legacy and i just wanted to say thank you for sending people our way they are amazing and it's the first thing i listen to on friday mornings when their episodes come out
0: and i wanted to apologize for forgetting to scoop in a couple people one of them being my co-host tom smiley
1: you can fuck yourself sorry bud <laughs> <laughs> it's all good.
0: i did have it on my notes but got a little out of control
1: yeah it was uh it was a fun episode
0: so yeah while we're thanking people I wanted to also thank the people that have reached out about uh, this uh, High Roller event in Bighamton. I know one of them was named Corey, extended a very generous invitation. That date, it turns out, coincides with uh, LobsterCon, which is the first uh, ever New England old school event. So I'm really going to have to do some thinking this week, some soul searching to figure out which event I'm going to go to.
1: Yeah, I want to apologize for the other person who reached out because i'm 100 percent sure that we had multiple messages about binghamton and uh i can't find it i don't know if it was on discord or if it was on twitter or if i dreamed that there was another email and it didn't actually happen but if you are a listener who emailed us and you are not Corey, i apologize for you for not giving you a shout out because i literally have no idea where that message went
0: Yeah. And you guys need to understand we're basically drowning in emails at this point. So it's totally understandable. Tom would lose one.
1: Yeah. It's, we, we get one a month. It's, it's really hard for somebody who doesn't have an administrative background to deal with that volume of emails. Uh, Hillary Clinton, RIP. So so how
0: how was your, how was your week, brother?
1: (laughs) My, my week was great. I, uh, I've spent a ton of time this week trying to get ready for the Grand Prix that's coming up this weekend. Been doing a ton of thinking about Legacy and how that's going to develop before I travel down to Richmond, and I'm not altogether sure that I'm going to be playing in the main event in Providence. But I wanted to have the choice, and I wanted to do a little bit. I wanted to do a little bit of prep, regardless of what happens.
0: So that's got to be expensive, right, to test uh, MTGO Standard?
1: So. I don't have to pay for deck switching. I, I guess we can talk about this a little now. I signed up for a service called Mamma Traders, and it has been outstanding. I always wanted Moto to be a subscription based model where I just pay a certain amount of money every month and then I can basically basically play whatever I want to. Standard, modern, legacy. And Mama Traders is a third-party card rental site where you sign up for your account you get a credit limit in tickets and a number of hours that you can borrow those cards for and it's all automated you go on the website you type in your deck list you click borrow and bots will automatically trade the cards to you online you can then trade them back and it tracks the value of the cards that you've borrowed and how long you've had them and you have a certain amount of um of hours you can rent those cards per month i've had an extremely positive experience with them and uh i guess you just started that too
0: yeah so basically listening to you talk about it i was kind of thinking what the hell am i doing why don't i just get on this i'd switched decks like three times so far i guess in july i switched decks three times and you're definitely losing some percentage right and it's just a pain in the ass too it takes like Literally, it takes like an hour to figure out which cards you need, which cards you can sell off, and not accidentally sell the cards you're going to have to buy again in two minutes. So I signed up last week. The signing up process was a little scary because basically they're not protected by MTGO at all, so you have to basically give them access to your PayPal, but their site was one of the... I'm a software developer, so... I can speak with you know some degree of certainty here. It was one of the uh, best managed sites I've ever seen in the MTG sphere. Totally secure, uh, linked up with PayPal seamlessly, and I wasn't really sketched out by giving them my details. Like it wasn't. I was. I'm not afraid. I'm going to get hacked or something. Now they were totally legit, and everything I've done with them so far, I've been like unbelievably impressed with it. They have this feature where you can go through like 5-0 lists and challenge lists and basically just import any deck and then edit it. You know, like, oh, I don't want this card. I want this other card. Or even if you're just like, oh, I want to play Grixis Delver, you can shop around a couple Grixis Delver lists, find one that's close to you, make your couple cards switch. And then you literally just press fulfill my order. And 30 seconds later, you get a pop-up in MTGO that just sends you the cards. So it's great. And you have this hourly limit. But it basically works out to like 1,000 hours is, is one league. So you basically get like 60 leagues over the course of a month, which while I'd love to be able to play that much, I'm just never going to use all those hours. So it's perfect.
1: Yeah, there's no way that I'm going to, to hit my hourly limit. There are a few things that I think that they could improve on a little bit. One thing, if you're signing up and you see that there is a vintage add-on and you think, oh, I'm not going to be playing any vintage, I don't need that that the Vintage add-on actually allows you to borrow Legacy cards. So I didn't understand that when I first signed up, and I went to go borrow a Legacy deck, and it wasn't trading me the Dual Lands, and it wasn't trading me Force of Wills. And then I had to go back and read that that $8 a month covered Legacy and Vintage. So that's something a lot of you are definitely going to want to make sure that you have from the get-go. And because of the way that the borrowing works... A lot of times when you'll get your trades, they will be different editions of the cards that you have loaded into your Moto Deck Builder. So before every league, when I get my cards from Mana Traders, I have to go and replace the editions that are saved in my lists online with the ones that were borrowed.
0: Oh, I get it now. I, I, I thought that you were complaining about having to click on the individual. Like if they send you three different wastelands, you have to click on each one.
1: No, it's, the, it's the, the lists that I have stored in my Moto account have a certain edition of Wasteland. And if I get multiple, multiple Wastelands from different editions from Mana Traders, then I have to go through and replace the gold-bordered cards that are there with the ones that were traded.
0: So, bro, what you do is when the list is up in Mana Traders, click Export. And then go create a deck in Moto and click Upload, and you won't have that problem.
1: Yeah, that's way better than what I've been doing. And that's Thank really
0: you. not their problem. That, that's like a Moto problem, one of the 7,000, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It is definitely the best client to play Magic on, but it is quite a bit that could be improved.
0: Yep. So basically this weekend, I, I had a wedding I went to on Saturday, but Sunday I was home all day. And Mana Traders is great because I got, to, I got to play three different decks through League on Sunday, which was awesome. I'm kind of going through a non-blue phase right now. After finally convincing myself to play Maverick, I enjoyed it, you know? It takes a little getting used to not playing Brainstorm. Having extra land stuck in your hand is one of the most awful feelings. And not hitting your third land drop is awful as well. So that part really sucks, but... I did pretty well with uh, with Maverick. I actually was telling you, both times I 4 one I followed it up with an 0-3, so the consistency really wasn't there, and it didn't feel like it was tremendously well positioned in the meta. I made a couple improvements to the deck each time through. I ended up moving next to, um, to Jaunt, to Punishing Jaunt, because I was looking for a deck that was going to beat the Grixis variants and Death and Taxes, which I kept running into and that also I wasn't going to have a risk of timing out with, because I timed out with Maverick, mostly due to lag, actually, on MTGO, which...
1: Now, you, you play on a tablet, is that right?
0: I do, and that kind of sucks, but this was, like, extenuating circumstances. Like, and I was bitching to you about this earlier, I found a line with two minutes left against Death and Taxes, where I could get lethal damage through, But I had to take about 20 game actions to get there. You know, a lot of cracking lands with knights and wasting. And my opponent was activating empty vials and porting me to keep messing up my rhythm. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of lag on the client. Like, a lot of times I'd click a button and it would be three, four seconds before anything would happen. And that's just very frustrating. But Maverick, I mean... I'm not sure that I've ever played a deck that required you to take as many actions, like sort of manual clicking around. And actually being on a tablet can sometimes be an advantage because it's just, you know, you're just hitting the screen really rapidly. Okay. But anyway, yeah, I've, I've had a decent amount of success playing Punishing Jund, actually. I have not lost to any of the Grixis or Death and Taxes decks. And one deck that's been popping up a lot lately that I thought was going to be a nightmare matchup is Ant. But actually, I've split with them so far. I have nine discard spells main deck, three, three, and three, actually, of the main ones. And it's working out alright for me so far.
1: Now, three Thoughtseize, three Inquisition, and. Three Him. Three Him, okay.
0: Yeah, and then the creature suite would be uh, four Dark Confidant, three Tarmogoyf, one Scavenging Ooze. I'm actually A-B testing with one Rabble Master and one Sin Prodder, because I wasn't really sure which one I wanted, and then three Bloodbraid Elves.
1: Okay. You I think that you could also find that maybe you don't want either of those. Those are those are cards that might not be super well positioned.
0: So they're really not. Well, Rabblemaster really isn't, I should say. But what I've found with Bloodbraid Elf is a lot of times you want to get the most out of your cascade, so I'm trying to find a 3 drop that isn't, you know, another Liliana because I'm already at 5 Lilianas. So I'm trying to find like a three-drop threat. I had a Grim Flayer, actually, in the first league I played. Uh, I had that in there, and it just felt bad to cascade into a Grim player Like, there's got to be a better three-drop out there than the Anemic two-drop, right? Do you have any ideas?
1: That's That would take me doing some thinking to come back to. I just, when when I hear sin proder that isn't the type of card that I'm thinking of being legacy-efficient. Unless you're talking about some different shells. But Punishing Dund seems like a great choice going into a Death and Taxes Delver metagame. Have you played any matches against Show and Tell?
0: Um, Actually, 0-1 against Show and Tell, which I figure it's got to just be a nightmare matchup. I don't really... I'm used to having the white sideboard cards for the Show and Tell matchup. I am running three Pyroblasts in my sideboard, but that's as as close to a dedicated card as I have right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know you have wastelands. You have the nine discard spells, uh, plus a couple coligons commands. But really, I just I kind of expect to be punning that matchup. Okay. Now,
1: while while you were playing your leagues on Sunday, you told me that you registered for the challenge, and you sent me a screenshot of the deck that you were playing in the in the challenge, and it made me just sort of put my head. In my hands, and wonder what the hell you were doing. You want to talk about that?
0: Yeah. So this goes back to uh, the dark day that Oath of the Gatewatch was was spoiled, and I happened upon this trained Armadon that we like to call a Drowsy Displacer.
1: It's a great card. It, I won won an open with that card. Really? Wasn't Legacy. Oh, okay. But I did.
0: So. The card just spoke to me. It spoke to my soul. I ordered way too many of them.
1: How many? How many did you order?
0: I don't know. I have 36 now. Uh, <laughs> I had significantly more at one point, but anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. I've really just uh, wanted to make this card good, but you know, with having to buy in and buy out of decks on Moto, I could never justify playing like a displacer list because i was just always in blue decks you know i was never selling my daises or forces or anything so i was like fuck it i'm gonna do this i'm gonna play i called the deck max displacer uh when i rented it and i basically i went four tombs two cities and four mox diamonds to power out four chalices four thalias like my turn one plays right and then i also had two thorns to back that up
1: so very similar to like a vintage white eldrazi build. Exactly. Okay.
0: Then I had obviously four displacers. But the synergies with displacer were I had main deck containment priests which I figured would be good with the hovering around 10% amount of show and tells.
1: Now did you did you get any reanimator or show and tell players with the main deck displacer?
0: Dude, so actually or, Sorry,
1: the main deck priest
0: so, actually, in round 5 of the challenge, I lost game 1 to Show and Tell when I had a turn 1 Containment Priest. It was Trinity Tell. They found uh, an Omniscience, and they Eldamri's called me out of the game. So that that's just brutal, and that makes me think, like, maybe that deck is too powerful, but anyway. So yeah, it didn't work out for me. But, I yeah, I had the Containment Priest, I had 3 Stoneforge with 3 Equipment, And four Recruiter of the Guards with like a healthy package of of tutors to go get, tutor targets. I had like a Big Thalia, Mirren Crusader, Sanctum Prelate, and then a pair of Palace Jailers. I actually wish I had a third because I was running out of Palace Jailers to go fetch quite a bit. That was the card I wanted the most and probably the card that felt best about this list in general. I ended up going 2-3 in the challenge and 3-2 in a league I was playing at the same time. I never won or lost back-to-back games, which is kind of the nature of playing Chalice decks in my experience. I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I just find that you have these extreme highs and extreme lows, right? Because you're mulliganing a lot, and you're keeping a lot of questionable fives because you don't want to go lower. Uh, And that was the long and the short of it. And, you know, the deck's certainly not in its final form or anything, but it's it's something that I've really wanted to explore, and I was glad to get the chance to do it.
1: Yeah, that... That's very interesting. I, I don't have a ton of time to sit down and play. So sort of exploring ideas like that isn't my strength or really on my radar. I, I definitely think that I'm better at taking an established deck and tuning it. And I am really sort of interested in Punishing Jund with what you were talking about, in how it's positioned, I sort of have like a whiteboard back in my office where we record the podcast with all of the decks that are sort of still on my radar to play in Richmond and Punishing John sort of made that, made that list.
0: Interesting. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I, I want to make sure
1: that that I'm as prepared for Richmond as I can be. I'm driving down with my family my father-in-law lives in Richmond, so we're staying with him. But I'm, I'm not teaching any classes now, and I have this time to prepare. So I want to make sure that I can do everything that I can to make sure that I'm bringing a well-positioned deck and that I'm ready to play it. So I'm sure that the listeners of the podcast will, um, will benefit from me sort of going through my thought process about weeding decks out and taking them off my list. And decks that I take off my list it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a bad choice to play, but they're a bad choice for me and what I enjoy playing and what my play is like.
0: Have you ever played punishing John before?
1: I haven't, but I have played against it plenty of times. I have a friend from Canada who comes down quite a bit to stay for, um, for the SCG Worcesters. And he, he plays punishing Jund in legacy so I've had quite a, quite a bit of experience in the matchup, but I have not played the deck in a tournament.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Out of the three decks I played this week, Punishing Jun was by far my favorite, and by far the one I had the best results with. It really has a decent amount of play to it. I'm, just, I'm really enjoying it, honestly. And I'm going to ship you my list. I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. One thing that I couldn't really find was a list that had done well since Death Deathrite had been banned, like uh, sort of an agreed-upon where the deck is right now. And the deck hasn't really been a thing, quote-unquote a thing, for a while, right? I mean, so Death Deathrite was printed, and we saw a lot of Punishing Jund for a little while, but then Treasure Cruise came along. And after that, I think that Agro Loam was basically the only deck in that genre that was really competing with the efficient decks, because there's a Chalice deck, right? But I feel like there is room for at, for Punishing Jund right now. And I would feel great about it if not for the literal last game I played, which I lost, to a deck that I hadn't seen in a long time but seemed like a troublesome matchup, which was uh, Shardless Bug.
1: I I haven't seen that deck in forever. And I don't, at least right now, I don't think that's something that would would be would be a consideration for why you would not want to play that deck.
0: So it's not right now, but I'm I'm thinking like three weeks out, if Shardless Bug takes some sort of a foothold in the meta, and just looking at the meta, like after I played the deck, I was kind of thinking about it, you know, like what its matchups might be like. Storm is, is not a good matchup for Shardless, and I don't believe that they have much more play against um, Show and Tell decks. I mean, they have Force of Will main deck, but compared to the Jun deck, I'm not sure that it's much better, so I, I think it remains to be seen how much combo the meta has. But I think that if the meta stays fair, that Shardless could trump a lot of those fair decks.
1: Well, Shardless sort of just got trashed when Deathrite got banned. What What is that list now replacing that with?
0: Straight up Noble.
1: Just Noble hierarchy. And well, Shardless? That's
0: the list I played against, yeah.
1: Okay. I, mm, I, I don't have that on my radar at all. And if I'm wrong about it, then I'm wrong about it. But I think that there are some there are some more preferred bug shells that would sort of take the place of shardless in my opinion.
0: Yeah, so do you want to talk about some of the bug lists that have popped up recently? Because I was actually looking at these earlier today.
1: Yeah, well actually we had we had some listener questions that I wanted to get to that might tie into what we talk about with the bug
0: lists. Okay.
1: All right, so our good friend Bera had two questions that he shot us in an email earlier today. And the first one doesn't have anything to do with Bug, so we'll, we'll lead off with that. And then the second one, will sort of transition into it. So I'm interested to hear your answer to this question. He asks, what Planeswalker do we think is most underplayed in Legacy?
0: Oh, man. I got to think for a second. Okay. Does little Jace count? Little Jace counts. I would definitely say little Jace then.
1: Okay. I, I love that answer because in my opinion, it's also little Jace. And I had, (laughs) I had Gideon of the trials in as an honorable mention, because I think that there are some considerations when it comes to casting costs that weeds out a lot of other planeswalkers and Main deck, Gideon of the Trials, can completely blank quite a few decks in Legacy right now, and I think that that card is underplayed and has potential to be very good. Now, Bera thinks that it's Nahiri the Harbinger,
0: <laughs> and
1: I, I understand why he thinks that, but I don't think it's right.
0: Castable off two plateaus, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I, he, is, he is the Plateau Mage.
0: Yeah, so we haven't really seen a lot of Abrupt Decays in quite a while, really. So Gideon of the Trials, if you're not dealing with him through creature combat, you're not dealing with him, right?
1: Yeah, and many of the decks in Legacy right now that are going through creature combat aren't really going wide. They're going big, and Gideon is very good against those strategies as well.
0: Yeah, so I've been hyper-aware of that, actually, in the past 24 hours with Palace Jailer and, and you know people trying to get through. Uh, in the 10 matches I played with that deck, I didn't play against a single True Name Nemesis. So they're really you know not as prevalent as before, because those are the kind of creatures that just mess that all up, right? That whole dynamic of holding the ground. You generally have to worry about True Name or Trample creatures, and I just really didn't see any of that. I could generally be as wide as any deck if I needed to.
1: And actually, that goes perfect into this next question. So, the next question had was, what rogue deck or strategy do you think is best positioned for a good run uh, post-Pro Tour? So, my answer to that is Aluren. (laughs) I don't really know if Aluren counts as a rogue strategy, because it is pretty well defined. But the idea that there hasn't really been a solid Leovold shell since the Pro Tour, really leads me to think that that bug area is the one that really needs to be explored the most. Maybe Bug True Name, but Aluren has actually put up some results online, and it's a deck that I don't have a ton of experience with, but I could see that bug, grindy, mid-range shell with a combo finish performing quite well.
0: And I wasn't laughing at your answer if my snicker ends up making it onto the podcast.
1: Oh, it will. It will now. It will.
0: I, I was laughing because my answer to this question was going to be Food Chain. And they're so similar. Like the, those two decks, right? They're the, the bug creature combo decks, I guess you yep. could call them. And they're both strong combo decks against death and taxes, basically. Aside from elves, you're looking at like the next least disruptable deck. I think, actually, Alurin might be less disruptible than Food Chain, right? Because you're actually playing artifact creatures, so Cannonist can't break it up.
1: Yeah, and Revoker can't break it up either.
0: Right, yep, that's a great point. So, yeah, Alluren might actually be the better answer. I lost one to Food Chain yesterday, and I've been thinking a lot about the deck. This deck had is funny because it's been neutered by both the bands, uh, Sensei's top, in the Trinket Mage package. And Deathrite Shaman are the two neuters for this deck, but really Noble slots in pretty well in that deck in Food Chain, and the deck that I was playing against still ran the uh, Trinket Mage package with multiple Relics, and it seemed fine to me.
1: Yeah, I I have not had a bunch of experience going through playing those two decks, but it's it's on my radar for things that I want to explore more. I know that that bug space with all of the deck lists that we're seeing come out has the most room for innovation and potentially could be extremely powerful once you, one, figure out what the meta is going to settle to, and two, get some main deck and sideboard mapping going on for whatever build you're playing.
0: Yeah, and I really enjoy playing both those decks for what it's worth. I've played both of them, I think, only once in tournaments, but. You can play like a grindy game with either of decks. You can side out the combo and still beat mid range decks. So I like, you know, the play that you get, the customizability of the decks, and I think you'd enjoy them too.
1: Yeah, they can do powerful things and play a long, grindy game. Usually, I enjoy playing decks that are a little bit more focused, that you have your game plan more or less laid out before the game starts and it seems like both of those decks have a ton of moving pieces depending on what your matchups are whether you want to focus on comboing or value and what your lines are it would take me a lot of time to get used to playing a deck like that but i wouldn't i wouldn't be against it
0: yeah i mean you have tons of time right you got three weeks
1: well i have three weeks and i have a kid so we'll see we'll see how much that actually translates to testing time. But after he goes to sleep, I'm generally free.
0: Excellent. So um, since we're t- we've been talking about uh, mana traders for a while now, did you want to drop the code on them?
1: Yeah. So I didn't want this to seem like it was a commercial for mana traders. Like, hey, Anne, what did you do this weekend? I rented a deck with mana traders. But both of us actually enjoy the product we think it's awesome and i wouldn't be able to play as many decks as i play online without it so i have a code that you can use to get a three-month discount and a referral link that i'll put into the show notes the promo code is t and it's good for a three-month discount if you sign up we are not sponsored by Mana traders they actually sent me an email saying like Look, here's your coupon code, but bud, you don't use our logo. Don't <laughs> say, don't say that you are sponsored. Here's a coupon code for your listeners, but they are they uh they were very adamant about not using their logo or using their stuff to promote our podcast. Well,
0: let me, so let I just me want... work on them a bit. All right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got. We'll I got a, I got everybody a discount. So there nice we go. Nice job. Yep. I tried.
0: Myself included, so thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. So I highly recommend it. I use it. It makes playing Magic Online a lot easier. And if that is something that you are interested in, definitely check it out.
0: Yeah, holler at your boy. Just send Tom a message and he'll shoot you that link.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to put it in the show notes so you can find it in the show notes. Click it through there. Use our promo code. And if you don't like it, then don't tell us.
0: No, seriously, if you don't like it, don't tell us. So, yeah, we've got, uh, I guess, five days out, five days on the horizon, is Grand Prix Providence, which, uh, for listeners who might not be geographically familiar with New England, that's like 45 minutes from us, or maybe from me, I guess, maybe farther from you.
1: Uh, Maybe an hour.
0: Okay. so, yeah, we have Grand Prix Providence coming up. It's a standard Grand Prix. I have done... No standard testing, although I could with Mana Traders, not sponsored. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that this week or not, or if I'm just going to show up and play some legacy side events, and uh, we have a nice little old-school event happening there, too, that I could join up. So what are you thinking?
1: Well, so I actually did a little bit of testing. I rented, I rented a deck and hopped in a standard league, finished 3-2 and two with it, not really being familiar with the format. But I had a twist on one of the sort of popular standard decks that I wanted to try out some cards in, and it worked out really well for me. I'm unsure whether or not I'm going to go play in the larger Legacy event that they have or if I'm going to play in the Grand Prix. I'm leaning more toward playing in the main event because it's really like what sort of excites me about playing. But if I feel like I'm not as far along with my Richmond prep, I might not play in the main event, and this, just go and jam a ton of legacy.
0: Yeah, I'm like 80-20 on not playing in the main event at this point. So what do you know when that legacy uh, biggest legacy event is?
1: I don't know the time. I don't know the day. I know that they're having one.
0: Excellent. Thanks for the information.
1: You're welcome. Oh, uh, hold on. Let's look it up. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> our listeners will want to know. They'll be like, motherfuckers, you're talking about it. Look it up for us.
0: I'm afraid the answer is going to be that they only have four round events.
1: They don't even have the four round constructed events. It looks like the only on demand they have for constructed is TurboTown.
0: Fuck you, Channel Fireball.
1: Yeah. Friday, they have a four round event with double prizes no, actually, fuck it. It's only three rounds.
0: Yeah, fuck them.
1: Uh, it's three rounds. It's 35 bucks, too. The fuck? Jesus.
0: So, we're gonna be doing some surgery on this podcast. On the, the editing floor.
1: Okay, never mind. It's shit for Legacy.
0: Yeah, I'm either gonna play the main event, or I'm gonna play Old Tool. Yep. Not in the conventional.
1: Uh, yeah, it looks like... It looks like their, their Legacy schedule is really weak. So I'm probably going to be playing in the main event after seeing that
0: we love you star city dude speaking of channel fireball and legacy though i follow sperling on twitter did you happen to catch this tweet he sent today that he finally 5-0'd with blue white delver
1: i did not
0: dude so he posted a list on twitter and it was a blue white delver deck it was uh four delvers four stone forge two snaps and three true names no mother of runes no Stifles and Wastelands.
1: Okay. So you get the the Fetch Tundra, Stifle, Snapcast, Stifle?
0: Exactly. That seemed pretty hot, honestly. The deck didn't look great to me, but I bet you get a lot of people. Like, what the hell is going on right now?
1: Yeah, anytime you play more of a rogue strategy that people aren't sure exactly what your deck list is or what is going on, you're going to get a lot of percentage points from people making mistakes against you. And I can definitely see people not expecting anything that you had said out of a list like that.
0: Yeah, especially if you start out, like, let's say you play an island ponder and then play a basic plains. No one's seeing Stifle.
1: No, definitely not. Like, you still have the, the Miracles or Stoneblade idea about that. But Stifle or Delver would be completely unexpected from a from a basic island, basic plains mana base.
0: Yeah, and even if you sell it a fetch land in play and it was open that you might be like a blue-white-red. Nobody's thinking Stifle out of blue-white-red either. Yep. So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So listeners, look out for that. Don't get Stifled. So yeah, basically, there have been a lot of decks that, that I'm looking to try out now that we have this uh, Mana Trader subscription. One of the decks that I'm most excited about trying out, I can't because uh, the commander cards aren't online and I'm not sure when they will be.
1: I think I think they're they're gonna integrate them via chests like they do with all the supplemental product.
0: Yeah, is that soon though?
1: I, I don't know when they update the drops for chests. I do know that you used to be able to actually purchase the precons online, but nobody did so they took them out of the store.
0: Yeah, that ended a while ago, and, like, last year, I'm not sure if the Commander decks came out at the same time last year or not.
1: I think they were they were out in October, November, right before sort of the holiday season, and I think the cards ended up getting released onto chests in the middle of November or something like that.
0: Right, okay, I'm actually thinking of uh, Conspiracy then. I- I'm way off.
1: Oh, okay, okay. When
0: that came out, they did release Leovold in, like, a relatively timely fashion. But it took until, like, that November, which was, like, three-month lag to get Palace Jailer online, right? Yes. So and I'm afraid of that situation with uh, Animatu or whatever the Planeswalker's called.
1: Yeah, I think the um, the Mythics, you're probably not going to see as much of a lag. I think that they, they probably just didn't assume that Palace Jailer was going to be eternal constructed playable, and that's why it took a long time to get it in.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, hopefully we see this in a timely fashion. I have the deck now in paper, and I'm looking forward to playing it. Unfortunately, I don't get a lot of time to play paper anymore. But uh, I am definitely looking forward to testing this, and this kind of makes me want to jam some legacy games at the Grand Prix.
1: For a co-host of a competitive legacy podcast you play a bunch of shit decks dude <laughs> sorry sorry say it, say it bro uh, we need we need people like you to to innovate and really sort of explore new ideas but man as soon as you sent me that screenshot of the
0: <laughs> displacer
1: deck i was like man what the fuck are you doing Dude,
0: I'm like soul searching right now. I'm playing some weird shit. All right, just just let me do my thing. This is I, I this is your this like out.
1: early early twenties hippie phase deck building before you like settle down into your job in your career. You're just exploring all of your options.
0: I'm trying to cross as many off my list as possible. If you follow. Yep. But uh, also, it's like the meta right now, right? I'm not I'm not gonna play show and tell. You know, I'm not gonna. I mean, I I might play Grixis, or, uh, Grixis Control, either one. But really, I'm kind of looking for a spot and sort of examining what we see of this meta. Like, I looked at the five O list today and I looked at the uh, challenge list today. I think there might be room for a Bant deck again.
1: Yeah, well, there was one list that I saw that was actual Bant true name, but it was the only green cards main deck. In Noble Hierarch, it had two basic islands and a basic plains, and it was really just blue white stone blade splashing for Noble Hierarch for the acceleration. And The creature package was like four Hierarch, four Stoneforge, four True Name, and that was it. And that's really taking the Bant archetype way back to like 2011 or 2012. I remember top eighting in an open with a deck that like almost had that exact same creature package, except Knight of the Reliquary was True Name Nemesis, and there was a clicker of something in there as well. I still I still don't know if I'm willing to go back and test Ban, because all of those issues with its mana base are still there. People are still going to be playing rug Delver, even though I don't think that it's great. Death and Taxes is probably going to be the most played deck, and True Name is great against Death and Taxes, but... It lacks the finishing power if your equipment gets removed. And since Death and Taxes is going to be so popular, people are ready for equipment. And Grixis Control is also going to be played quite a bit. And I don't want to run a deck like that into K-Command.
0: So actually, the deck that I have on my radar to play next is a deck that you mentioned to me. This is like ancient history, like three or four days ago at this point. You mentioned to me, I think your your text was, rug Delver with Noble Hierarchs.
1: Okay, so I was just consuming a ton of content.
0: I was going to say alcohol.
1: Yeah, okay, well, that too. <laughs> that too. Okay, so I was consuming a ton of alcohol and magic content leading up to this week's cast, and I reread the testing notes that Lucas esper put out about his ProTor Tour testing. And in one of his notes in that file that he released, which is a really good read if you haven't read it, he actually mentioned that a lot of the Delver deck's use of Deathrite Shaman was really as a mana accelerant in the early game. And he wondered why people weren't testing Noble Hierarch in a rug shell. Mainly because Delver plus Hierarch is still a very good clock. It unlocks True Name Nemesis as a threat that you could legitimately cast with that mana base. And playing a deck with Daze and Stifle and a bunch of soft counters with Wasteland is really more advantageous if you are able to use your mana while all of that's going on. So, taking Nimble Mongoose, which is really not the threat that it used to be, and replacing it with Noble Hierarch might make a lot of sense. And that that idea is something that I would like the time to explore. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have it. I think that Bug lists would be higher up on my. I want to test this than the rug hierarch but it's something that in my mind has some potential, and uh, I could see it being very good.
0: All right, bro. So you said you're not gonna have the time to explore, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna strap on my my mining hat with like the the lamp on the top.
1: We're getting the soccer team out.
0: We're getting them out of the cave.
1: We're getting them out of the cave.
0: There we go. I'm going deep. I'm going to play this deck for sure. I'm I'm really excited about it. I'm going to play, so hear me out, four Delvers, four Hierarchs, two Mongeese, which is a weird number, and four True Names. I like to think not in terms of fours sometimes with deck building, but in terms of sixes and eights. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the Mongeese as True Names five and six.
1: Now, Uh, I I would be interested in, in playing Goyf still.
0: Okay. You can sell me on that. I'm not totally opposed to that. That, that's interesting. So just because it's a bigger beater and it doesn't matter if it's just going to eat the swords?
1: I, I think that Mongoose, Mongeese aren't super effective against most of the sword decks that people are going to bring. I think the major sword deck is just going to be Death and Taxes and Mongoose is kind of trash against them.
0: You're absolutely right now that you mention that. So I'm going to go with Hooting Mandrills.
1: Uh, uh, uh I, I would much rather play Tarmogoyf. I don't know about you in fact i I might explore some different rug threats in that spot other than mongoose because really one of the main reasons to make the switch to have hierarch is to make sure that you don't have to register mongoose in your list,
0: yeah, that's fair, and I haven't really done like any detailed analysis of like the blue count in this deck or the spell count in this deck. I mean the spell count would be twenty eight if I'm playing fourteen creatures, but yeah. Like the blue count really, and you know how many cantrips I'm going to play, what sort of velocity I have for delving, and getting threshold, I guess. So I haven't really done the math on this. I might not end up playing mongoose, but you're not really, you don't really have access to any good flyers in these colors. You can't get like a, a bitter blossom or a, a tomb or anything like that in there. So I'm thinking that against death and taxes, what I'd like to have most is is hooting mandrels, probably. Of the three that I'm thinking of right now,
1: okay, I could I could see that being the best fit for mandrels going forward, but I would want to do some deep diving to try to find something that isn't that isn't that.
0: Yeah, you're right. So, as far as like uh, the spell suite goes, so you're you're just replacing like a bolt with plow, and then I'm thinking like two stifles for the stack, like gotcha stifles.
1: Oh, you're actually thinking of completely transitioning the rug base to Bant.
0: Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, is that not what you were thinking?
1: No, I was thinking of actually maintaining the rug shell, but just using Noble Hierarch as a mana accelerator for blue and green.
0: Yeah, I don't know why I went to swords, maybe because fuck Death Shadow is why, but yeah, I was just thinking that I was going to play Swords Flashers in this deck.
1: I mean, you could you could definitely make that transition and move away from red into white, but I think that you still want to maintain pyroblast and lightning bolt.
0: Well, let's take a look at this meta, right? Are those are those two cards better than like your containment priest and other white cyborg cards right now?
1: I mean, is containment priest good?
0: It was pretty bad, honestly. When I've been playing it recently, so that, yeah, that's one strike against it.
1: So I think. I think that if you're expecting a lot more reanimator, then obviously containment priest gets better. But I, I see a lot of the people who are going to end up bringing show and tell, be playing that Triforce deck with three omni, and the cunning wish, uh, release the ants combo.
0: That and fucking deck, man.
1: That I mean, it's the better show and tell deck for the mirror. JPA brought that to the Pro Tour probably because there was a large proportion of show-and-tell players that were expected to show up, and you don't want to play the straight-up 4-4 four, four in the mirror. It just you're, you're missing out on some equity by not having access to more Omnis. And I think that Containment Priest is excellent against Black-Red, but in those post-sideboard games, Black-Red is really ready for Containment Priest out of white decks. That whole archetype that's still on my radar just plays the dance with matching up with your opponent's sideboard cards and Containment Priest isn't really going to get a good black-red player anymore.
0: I think it might still get them out of our deck where they're not really sure what the hell is going on, but I, I do understand what you're saying, absolutely. Okay. So... Yeah, so we got Pyroblast, we have Ancient Grudge, I guess, if we play red. Maybe I will start with the red version of this deck instead of the white version, because it it seems like it would be more built for me already, in terms of like a standard rug sideboard I could just start with.
1: And it will sort of allow you whether to see that that the hierarchs are worth it or not more, more easily, because you have an already established shell that you can just go ahead and sub it into and see how the games where you have it on turn one go.
0: Dude, I'm ready to burn some fucking tickets.
1: <laughs>
0: Honestly, in this whole crusade I've been on to, to play awful decks, I haven't burned tickets, man. I mean entering the challenge was kind of a waste, but uh I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but I'm not hemorrhaging tickets.
1: <laughs> so that's that's great. That's yeah. that's outstanding.
0: <laughs> you wanna jump to uh do you want to explicitly talk about like the challenge?
1: Yeah, I think that there were a whole bunch of like 50 list that popped up in the leagues but I I go through all of them and I look and I'm like oh that's cute.
0: How frustrating is it that it's not weighted at all?
1: Well, I mean that's why you can't really pay too much attention to it. Like you can look at the lists and be like, "Ooh, look at this. Ooh, look at this." But it doesn't give you a good idea about the meta. There's some weird shit that's going to pop up because somebody has just been playing it a ton, right? Yeah. There's there's no way that you can tr- figure out how many leagues it took this person to get there, but it's good to see what is going on. You just can't put too much into the five O lists. The challenge is a little different because you know exactly what is going on when they publish the points per deck and the rankings. And there were some interesting things that happened in this challenge, which didn't blow my mind, but I didn't expect to see Turbo Depths surge back as as hard as it did this week.
0: Dude, how crazy was that? I would not have anticipated that. And I'm not really sure, now that we're on the subject, why... We hadn't seen Turbo Depths earlier than this. It wasn't clear to me, like, oh, this deck is holding Turbo Depths down. Do you have an opinion on that?
1: Well, I thought that it was Death and Taxes. I thought that Death and Taxes was the reason why we weren't seeing it. And I think we only saw one Death and Taxes list in the top 32 in the challenge. I could be wrong about that, but I thought that, um...
0: Oh, yeah, it broke my fucking heart, man. Topher on Death and Taxes.
1: Topher Topher brought Death and Taxes, and he, he almost finished in the top eight. But he was the only list that I saw that was in that top 32. And really, it it makes sense in my mind how Death and Taxes can hold that that Depths deck back. And if people didn't bring Death and Taxes, then you can see that deck doing well. I don't think that I would bring that deck to Richmond, because I feel like Death and Taxes is probably going to be the most popular deck. So... Regardless of what medic, what percentage Death and Taxes makes up, whether it's 9% or 10% or 11%, I don't want to bring something that has a bad matchup against the most popular
0: deck. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I was kind of spacing for a second. So since we're on the subject, if you had to pick your top three most popular decks for Richmond, yep. you said number one would be Death and Taxes right now. Yes. What are your two, three?
1: So right now, I have Death and Taxes at number one, Grixis Control at number two, and Sneak and Show at number three.
0: Like Trinity Tell?
1: Yes. Uh, now, I don't think they are all going to be that, but I think that if I was going to play Show and Tell, I would play that version over the other ones.
0: So I've heard a lot of talk this week from people that you don't usually hear talking about Legacy, saying that they think that Death Shadow will be the most popular deck in Richmond. Where do you think that that's going to fall?
1: I think that it's going to be definitely not as high of a percentage as the Pro Tour, but I think that it's going to be right below that. The fact that you can build the deck like Ben Friedman had with Basics, No Underground Sea, and Watery Grave, that is a very, very solid budget choice to be able to get into Legacy. And It's crazy thinking that the black-blue deck is the budget choice. But really, you want to maximize Death Shadow, then that's the way to do it. I, I think that Death Shadow isn't going to perform as close to as it did in the, in the Pro Tour because the share of sorts to plowshares decks is going to increase. Everybody knows that Delver is sort of surging back and Baleful Strix is great, which is why I think Grixis Control is going to be a solid number two. I would not bring Shadow to this Grand Prix, but I would consider bringing Grixis Delver, a sukenic build. I think that is better in the metagame going forward, but I do think a lot of people are going to see what it did in the Pro Tour, pick it up without a lot of testing, and then just bring it to the Grand Prix anyway.
0: Didn't Richmond have, like, a... Uh... 4,000 people for a modern Grand Prix at some point in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, that was the Eternal Witness Grand Prix playmat, where I heard that it was a shit show. It was a Star City Games one, but there were huge issues with the computer systems there.
0: Sounds about right. So, um, just based on that limited amount of knowledge I have of Richmond, I would expect that there's a lot of modern players, and that they would be inclined to pick up the Death and Shadow deck that they already have the cards for. Namely, watery grave and basic swamp and island. Yep. And I guess death shadow, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, death and taxes is still a very solid budget option too. As soon as port got reprinted, that deck that deck dropped down to like black red reanimator prices.
0: Yeah. It doesn't. I think Caracas is picking up some of the tab right now, right?
1: Well, Caracas used to be a lot more, but it reprinted it was reprinted and dropped down to like 50 ish i don't know what it's at now let me look it up
0: so i got in on all my karakai yeah 25 and they're over 50 now
1: okay so they're back up over 50 i had i had mine back like 2010 2011 whatever the prices were then so yeah their market price is like 70 dollars now
0: yeah man they're seriously headed for the sky
1: now speaking of finance stuff, did you go deep on any of the Esper cards you were talking about? You were sending me messages about the, uh, <laughs> the Commander deck and the prices, and coming from somebody who bought a hundred Eldrazi displacements, I just wanted to know if you got in, if you got in on any of these Esper cards.
0: I didn't. I thought better of it because what I really thought and what I texted to you was that like Leovold never really got above 50 or stayed above 50 right so how high even like if this planeswalker turns out to be playable it's not going to see like leovold levels of play you know it's not going to even come close because you don't have the death right screwing up the mana right now you don't have like uh it's just it's a planeswalker right it's not going to be played as a two three of the way leovold was it's a one possibly two of in Esper when you don't have Deathrite Shaman anymore. So three colors that are difficult three colors to play. So you're never, ever, ever looking at more than 5% of the meta. So I guess there's that ninja card, right? The Yukiro or whatever, that maybe could potentially like see as much play as Leovald. Not that I'm saying it will, because I don't see it personally. But uh, I think that that would be the card to go deep on rather than the Planeswalker.
1: Yeah, I... I looked through the spoilers when they came out with everything and usually I find a card or two that I'm excited about testing in Legacy and I just I didn't see it this time. So that probably means that Wizards did a better job of balancing the power level of these cards and maybe I'm missing something, but I even even the ninja I feel like that's just a casual a casual commander card and that's what they were aiming for when they made it. I I really can't see can't see that making an impact in legacy
0: well so like i wouldn't be surprised to see it pop up as a one of because honestly you can play like a cute card and still top eight a tournament because sometimes you just don't draw it and sometimes you're just ahead in games or so so far ahead or so far behind in games that it really doesn't matter right so you can see like uh, i think a classic example of this was saddleback lagak and, and show and tell i forget who was dicking around with that just to prove a point but I think that you're gonna see people wanting to play the card because it synergizes really well with Strix, with Snapcaster, with Stoneforge Mystic. It's tempting, and we've seen people talk about it in the in the Stoneforge groups. So I do think that some people are gonna try it out, but I'm not gonna be one of them.
1: Yeah, I just I I don't feel that it was high impact enough compared to what was already around. Like, sure, you can put that into a deck and play it, but is it? Better than having a true name or another strings or. I mean,
0: that kid from Rhode Island. Uh, he had what, like Cast and Nickel Bolus in his Grixis Death Shadow list, right?
1: I mean, it was in the sideboard, right?
0: Okay, yeah, true. <laughs> but that, thats the point that I'm trying to make, though. I guess is that, yeah. You know, you can play a a silly card and get away with it.
1: You are absolutely right.
0: So yeah, in the in the challenge, was there anything else that you noticed? One thing I noticed was uh. And this is something I've felt in the leagues, too, is just like Ant is back.
1: Yeah, I mean, it won the event, and Bryant came out swinging with the Epic Storm at the start of this format. I think that since Storm didn't really make a huge impression at the Pro Tour, that maybe people sort of lost sight of what it can do. And if you're deck building to tune to beat delver death and taxes and you aren't fully prepared for storm then it's it's gonna come back to bite you
0: yeah so i fully expect i was kind of just jotting down my expected richmond today and i actually had ant now in the top Seven or eight decks. I feel like it's going to have a much higher representation at a grand prix than it than did at the pro tour for the kind of the reasons that we discussed in the last two episodes. I don't want to get into them again, but you know you're going to have more storm specialists showing up to a grand prix.
1: Yeah, but and, how many how many people are actually storm specialists though? Like obviously there's uh, quite a few people who stream. There's quite a few people who write, but there there aren't enough of those people to make up the sixth most represented deck at a grand prix
0: so maybe enthusiast would be a better word than specialist okay i i do feel like there are quite a few storm enthusiasts
1: so where where are they now
0: playing in their local events
1: i think that the number of people who play storm fluctuates less than the number of people playing other decks because once you take the time to commit to learn to play Storm, you're less likely to switch off of it. Correct. And it's, it's a much harder deck to jump up in metagame share because of how much time it takes to go in. Like, if you have 1,500 people at this Grand Prix, what is the highest number of qualified people that there are going to be that show up that could play Ant at a high level?
0: So you would need, what, 40 to break the Pro Tour representation? 35, 40?
1: I mean, sure, but the Pro Tour representation was 1.5%. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that it is going to be more represented than the Pro Tour, but not double the representation.
0: I think double is right about where it will be, honestly we can we can table this maybe but I've seen quite a bit of it online I continue to see quite a bit of it in like different chats with locals that I'm in and it seems to me to be pretty well positioned right now
1: I don't disagree with you but i I don't think that storm is a deck that has the short-term potential to significantly increase its metagame share because of how hard it is to pilot
0: I'm not arguing with you there. Like, if I show up to this event, I'm not playing Storm. So there's an upper bound on it that's based on that simple rule of people that are used to playing fair decks aren't going to play it. But you get, like, at these GPs, also a lot of traveling... I'm thinking of, like, different ant players I played at GPs in the last two years, like David Ochoa. These people just show up at Grand Prix and they are... Willing to play Storm or Audible to to playing Storm decks because they have that experience they can draw upon. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know anyone really who's going to this Grand Prix other than my friends, but I would expect that a decent amount of people like that will be showing up and that the deck is well within their range.
1: What What else do you think you're gonna you're gonna see show up a lot at the Grand Prix?
0: Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to be there to find out, which sucks. But I think that. Um, Basically what you were saying, as your top three decks, Death and Taxes, Grixis Control, and Show and Tell, I would expect it to be Death and Taxes for sure. Show and Tell for sure. I'm not sure about Grixis Control at number three, honestly.
1: Well, I I think it's going to be number two. I think that it beats up the Delver variants... And I think it's got a good enough matchup against Death and Taxes and can be customizable post-board to make sure that it has a solid combo matchup, that that is still going to be a deck just like the Pro Tour that a lot of the skilled pilots bring. And sneakily, I think the Red Black Reanimator is going to be one of the better choices for uh, for this Grand Prix. I think that people with enough reps to get through the sideboard hate Red Black sort of has been flying under the radar. It was public enemy number one at the beginning of the format, but didn't break out, didn't break out, didn't break out. And I think this Grand Prix is going to be the one that it finally breaks out. I think people are going to end up cutting um, incorrectly some graveyard hate in the sideboard, and this is very high on my list of things to play in Richmond.
0: Yeah, so... I was debating between Eldrazi and Red Black for my third, which was kind of going to be... Either way, it was going to be kind of a reach, but I think that it could be one of those two decks, and I'll go ahead and just pick both of them to give myself some wiggle room. Okay, But uh, I think that you kind of need a different type of graveyard hate for Red Black, right? A lot of these death and taxes lists that we're seeing, the number of fairy macabs and surgical extractions they play relative to the number of... Rest in pieces that they play, right? And in the other decks, there's other options like Relic of Progenitus, Nile Spellbomb, that don't feel as bad in terms of card economy as Surgical Extraction, and will do just as good a job against like you know your Snapcasters, your Tarmogoyfs, your your sort of incidental graveyard hate that do absolute shit against red black. Yeah,
1: those those cards, while wow. okay. Aren't really efficient enough to make sure that they consistently beat red black.
0: Yeah, so maybe the number of graveyard cards that you know decks are playing isn't changing, but I think that the uh, the texture of the graveyard cards has been changing, and I do think it is clearing a path for red black. So I, I agree with you. Your call that it might end up putting like two copies in the top eight or something along those lines.
1: What else do you think about going forward to Richmond? Because really, that's the, that's the finish line for all of this prep that we've been doing. We did the Pro Tour predictions, but neither of us were playing. Uh, we did the recap. But really, I've been looking at all of this information from the Bannings to now to just prepare for Richmond. And I think a lot of our listeners are sort of excited to hear what we, what we come up with. And it sucks that you're not able to go, but I know next week, I'm pretty much just going to do a deep dive into what I'm playing for Richmond and what I'm doing to get ready.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately what I was about to say was there's a lot in flux right now, right? And it does feel like some things are static. Like I feel like death and taxes is pretty static right now. But I feel like there's a lot of other moving pieces. Like does does death shadow stick around, right? Like what percentage can we expect to see from death shadow? Will, will Rugged Elver just completely fall off the map between then and now?
1: Now, are we talking about before Richmond or after Richmond?
0: Between now and Richmond. I feel like I can really be swayed between then and now. So one thing that happened with the Pro Tour is I think that the Pro Tour metagame reflected the online metagame pretty well. And I feel like we, we're going to see a similar thing with Richmond. Where if a deck catches fire online, I feel like that's that's good enough to give it a five percent bump for Richmond.
1: Okay. I I think that we're gonna see those changes, but we're not gonna see them until after Richmond. And I think the reason why the online metagame was so was such a mirror of the Pro Tour metagame is that's where everybody was testing. So I do not believe that people are going to be going as hard in testing for Richmond as they did for the Pro Tour. And that we're starting to see people lock in their deck choices for Richmond now. We're starting to see people using the ProTor data to sort of do that. And I think that it would be unlikely for a deck that we haven't discussed to really break out in the next few weeks. Because there aren't any major events, right? We're talking about two challenges. And then we have the event that will change, that will change everything.
0: Yeah so I guess it's more like like if the tournament were to happen today if Richmond were to be happening tomorrow what decks would people be playing and then what are they doing in the 2 weeks between then and now and do I expect them to learn something in those 2 weeks like I think for for death shadow players a lot of people might say that they're playing death shadow today and in 2 weeks feel like they're not going to play it
1: but the people who are not who are on death shadow today and move off of it are probably just going to be moving to another Delver deck, so oh yeah, yeah, you can you can group those people into the same sort of
0: macro archetype.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I hate, <laughs> I hate to use that word, but like Delver I decks are Delver decks. If you're yeah. trying to analyze what's going on, you can rank the Delver decks. But if somebody is going to be playing a deck like that. It is more likely they're going to switch into another uh, another similar archetype.
0: That's legitimate. What do you think of uh, Infect for this tournament? Uh,
1: okay. I would love it if Grixis Control wasn't on my list. I would love it. I like its combo matchup. I love its Death and Taxes matchup. I think that the Delver matchups are not positive, but they're close enough to where I would be comfortable with bringing it. But, man, that Grixis Control matchup is just so bad that I do not think it's fixable. And I think that if the prevailing opinion is that Baleful Strix gets a lot better, because all of these decks that we're talking about are weak to Baleful Strix, that Infect isn't something that I want to bring because of because of the the poor Grixis matchups, whether it be Control or Delver.
0: Yeah, and looking at this metagame, one of the cards I keep thinking about is Grim Lava Mancer. And that's just another nightmare card for Infect, right?
1: It is, and we're seeing that in quite a few sideboards, and even certain main decks...
0: Yeah, I'm trying to incorporate it in a couple main decks right now. It, it's just like a very tempting card. Like when you're when you're thinking about death and taxes, Delver, and a baleful strix deck taking up three of the top five spots, it's like why not?
1: I think that because people have their their eyes set their eyes set on beating similar decks to Infect, that Infect is going to end up getting quite a bit of splash aid.
0: So. We talked a little bit about Stitcher's Apprentice. Actually, this might have been when I was on Leaving a Legacy. But just like the boost to Zombardment and whether there was sort of like a going to be any legacy impact from the card breaking out in Modern and people seeing that happen. And it seemed to me like Zombardment would be the deck where that would happen. Yep. I'm not like super familiar with this archetype or like the traditional spots in the deck. Uh, It seems to me like they've slotted in four Stitcher's Apprentice at this point, and the rest of the deck looks pretty much the same.
1: Yeah, it seems like it is probably great in a fair metagame, but again, probably not the best choice for combo.
0: Agreed, yeah.
1: Everything we're talking about here just leads me to want to try to play Black-Red if I'm not going to play something that's Grixis, just because I think that we're going to see a pretty big skew to fight fair creature decks and black red is going to gain an additional edge when that happens you beat show and tell you beat storm you beat many of the fair creature decks and if people are starting to see that death shadow might not be the deck that they think it is and rug delver isn't as powerful as people think then maybe black red is just the choice
0: yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I came into this podcast thinking about decks like Shardless Bug because I'm playing creature decks and trying to trump creature decks, right? And I can see other people going down that same path and, and getting more and more mid-rangey, right? And starting to play more Planeswalkers, more stuff like that that Black Red just loves to see.
1: So I think, I think this week I'm going to jam as much Black Red as I can. I've already been talking to Eric Landon. And and we'll see we'll see what happens leading up through through the Grand Prix.
0: Did you guys get your uh, matching best friend tattoos?
1: We didn't look. We worked on <laughs> we worked on band together. It's a it's a love story. It started on the source. It started with both of us telling people working on the band deck that they were dumb and we were right. Actually, it was mostly me telling people that they were dumb.
0: <laughs> no, that's awesome. He's just like the disciple of the deck, from what I hear. Everybody, uh, everybody who plays it's been talking to him.
1: Every every Sunday, put a dollar in the basket as it gets passed around, and then he tells you the new tech about the deck.
0: Dude, I saw that. Uh, what the fuck is it called? The zombie, the crypt breaker. Yeah, I actually like that more than pack rat.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it costs one mana, right? And there's exactly. less of there's less yep. of an investment. You're only playing like fourteen land. It can do things. Plus, like. The fact that that sideboard plan is out there makes people do some like some stuff like bring in Pyroclasm against Black Red or keep in their Lightning Bolts because they were afraid of that one drop. It Even if you don't have it, it makes people act differently toward the deck. I think that I would definitely start out playing some number in the sideboard. I think he's down to three now but it allows the deck to attack Leyline of the Void and other similar sideboard cards on a different axis.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I like that. So uh, rounding it out, in the, the uh, 5-0 deck dump that we got yesterday, Saturday, Yep. there were three bug decks. One of them was labeled Soul Tie, one of them was labeled Blue Black, and one of them was labeled Bug, that were all Leovold decks. That were all significantly different. There was one deck that had two Gurmag Anglers and three hymns that was heavier black. There was one deck that had four Goyfs and a bunch of one ofs, like uh it had Mana Leak and Spell Pierce and was playing like a a more traditional Delverish kind of game.
1: Yep.
0: And then there was one deck that had three Dark Confidants and a Baby Jace and it was almost like a Shardless deck without Shardless Agent, and it was actually playing days with no Noble Hierarchs in it. And I think that it's super interesting. People are definitely, as you've mentioned a couple times now, people are playing around with Bug and trying to find a shell that works, and I'm really interested to see if that kind of gets cracked before Richmond.
1: Yeah, I will, be, I will be on the lookout. We'll follow it closely, but going forward, I, I thought that that deck had legs before the Pro Tour, I think that people are still trying to figure it out. And maybe somebody will figure it out in time for the Grand Prix. But that is an area that definitely has some more exploring to um, that needs to take place.
0: If you were going to start somewhere, would you be starting with Dark Confidants or Tarmogoyfs or Anglers, in your opinion?
1: I wouldn't be starting with Dark Confidants. I first would start with Noble Hierarch. Yes. And then and, and see how that goes. I think that the number of threes that you have in your deck can trim into the number of Tarmogoyfs. I think Tarmogoyf competes with Baleful Strix. And I think that your Counterspell Suite and Spell Suite have to match your threat base. And there are so many different ways that you can build it. I don't think that I would be on Noble Hierarch, Gurmag Angler, but it, really, there's so many ways that you can put it together. I would start with Hierarch, Baleful Strix, True Name, and Leovold, and then see where it goes from there.
0: No Snapcaster?
1: No, I don't think that I would run Snapcaster there.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I like where your head's at. I, I think that the latter half of my week, once I'm done, Messing around with Noble Rug, I'm going to be switching over to Bug Decks, so I was curious where you'd start. I think I know where I'm going to start, which is Dark Confidant, because I'm having so much fun playing it in Jund. And yeah, we'll see where it goes. Perfect. So yeah, fuck, I, I wanted to say something before we get out of here. Oh, did we talk about Ligma?
1: We, we did not.
0: Damn it. Thought I was going to get you.
1: No, I, I actually I don't know what that is.
0: You don't know what Ligma is? I, I do not. Ligma balls?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my fucking God.
0: Alright man, are we done? <laughs>
1: we're we're done. Where where can people get in touch with you if they need to ask you questions about Ligma?
0: At Ian 18125 on Twitter and you
1: You can get in touch with me at TsmileymtG on Twitter and you can follow the cast at Dead And
0: email us at deadformatcast at gmail.com.
1: Especially if you were the person who I'm imagining sent us a message about Binghamton that uh, it might completely be a figment of my imagination.
0: Yeah, I'd really appreciate that information. All right. Uh, That's a wrap.
1: Thanks, everybody.